0: Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. Hi, my name is Julie Rotella, I'm the Executive Director of the Office of Training and Professional Development and I'm here today with Sean Morgan who is the Regional General Counsel for the East Region and he's also our resident expert and guru in termination of parental rights. So Sean, um, we want to talk a little bit about today about TPR and the process, can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. Uh, TPRs are termination of parental rights is a legal process the department goes through uh, in some circumstances in some cases where the only permanency option for children in those cases is adoption and before an adoption it can occur the uh, parents rights whoever the the parents are of those children their rights have to first be terminated and that requires a court order that requires the department proving to the court there's good reason to terminate the parental rights that it's in the child's best interest to terminate parental rights and then once the court makes that finding if it does then those rights are terminated and those children are in the department's full guardianship and are at that point available to be adopted
0: Okay, um, so tell us then, what under what circumstances does the department pursue a TPR?
1: Julie, there can be several circumstances under which the department pursues the TPR. Uh, it's good to have a frame of reference for when that happens. The department's mm-hmm. main uh, mission is to protect children, right. as you know. Uh, and if at all possible, we do that with circumstances where the the children can possibly remain in the home with Mm -hmm. the parents or if they can't remain in the home with the parents maybe with a relative Mm -hmm. or a family friend to just minimize the trauma for the children being removed from their parents so if we can't keep the children safe with the parents and they have to be removed then we try to make sure that they're removed to family or friends and if that's not possible they end up in foster care and it's the children in foster care that ultimately potentially could end up having their parents rights terminated and being adopted Mm -hmm. That That only happens, however, when the parents just have not been able to do what's necessary for those children to be returned to them Mm -hmm. into a safe environment with the parents, despite the help of the courts and the department over a period of time to assist them in correcting whatever the issues were that were making the kids unsafe. And if the parents can't do that, then the law requires us to pursue a termination.
0: Right. And as you said, first and foremost, we're always going to be looking at reunification with that parent or the caregiver that the child was removed from and then if that's not possible we'll pursue a TPR because we want to ensure permanency for our kids
1: and that's not just what the law requires and that that is what the law requires state and federal law requires that we attempt reunification that's just what the department does that's what we all want to do Mm -hmm. we want these families to be successful we want these kids to be back home Mm -hmm. with their parents and be able to go forward and have you know happy and safe lives and if there's any way to do that we're going to do that so termination of parental rights really is a last resort where there's just nothing left to be done for those kids except find them a new permanent home
0: is. I like the way you phrase that a last resort because that's absolutely what it is and that's that's our responsibility and our mission it is um, and what are
1: there are some time frames associated with TPRs right there are there are um, for example the feds require us or I will say the federal law requires us that after the children have been in foster care for 15 months mm-hmm. out of a 22 month period of time at that point the department has to start justifying to the juvenile court why we don't pursue a termination of parental rights. All the way up until that point um, we're working with the parents, we're doing everything we can to To reunify that family but at that 15 months um, it becomes the department's responsibility to convince the court that we are not pursuing it for good reason Mm -hmm. and at that point the court can say yes we agree DCS there is a good reason not to or it can say no I don't see a good reason and then at that point we're required to file a TPR that's not to say however that we're not necessarily going to do that on our own what we do is we look at the circumstances of the family and the children Mm -hmm. and determine what's in the best interest of the child and that's a team decision And that's a decision that's made um, by the case manager and their supervisor and Mm -hmm. their supervisor and in conjunction with the DCS attorneys to make sure that we've got what we need to be able to prosecute a case like that.
0: Great. Thanks. Okay, so what are the grounds for a TPR then?
1: There's there's a number of grounds, and that's a that's a good question. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is that the department is really constrained by the law as mm-hmm. to when we can terminate parental rights. We don't get to choose when to do it. Um, Sometimes people that are involved as foster parents or family friends uh, might get frustrated and say, why isn't the department terminating parental rights after three months? Mom's continuously testing positive for methamphetamine because there's nothing in the law that allows us to do that. within the law the earliest we could possibly file a petition to terminate parental rights is about four months and that's only if the parents have abandoned the children Mm -hmm. and abandonment really is they're not visiting with the children for four months they're not paying any child support Um, after four months of being helped by the department and the court The parents still are not able to provide a suitable home the kids can return to safely. Uh, Oftentimes, we'll have parents who are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe even when the case first starts, but then continue to engage in criminal behavior and become incarcerated one or more times during the time their children are in foster Mm -hmm. care. When they should be working to get them back, they're out committing crimes and getting locked up. And then there's a provision in Tennessee that allows a mother to leave a newborn infant at a hospital, Mm -hmm. uh, safe haven. And so those are the abandonment grounds. Other grounds require as much as six months before we can even consider trying to go forward with those. Um, And I can get into those right now, or if you have any other questions first, we can take a look at that.
0: Um, Sure. I just wanted to kind of go back to the abandonment, though, because sometimes I think people think when the visitation is inconsistent, or there may be long gaps in time, but it doesn't reach that four-month period that people think that meets the grounds for abandonment. And I think, as you said, it really has to be where there's No communication, no visitation, no participation at all by that parent for that
1: form? Pretty much, pretty much at all. Um, Although there's, you know, the law does allow for the parent to visit a little bit sporadically. Mm -hmm. um, There's a legal term that's involved with that, and um, that's called token visitation or token support, Mm -hmm. where the parent's visit um, or couple of visits is just so minor Mm -hmm. and clearly just phoned in and it's not involved uh, that the court would look at that if we can present the appropriate proof and say yeah she came two times in those four months but that's really not visitation. it wasn't
0: really meaningful visitation. right
1: that was right. token visitation okay. and that's one of the things that we have to prove and that's mm-hmm. that's one of the issues is we have to prove the grounds right. we have to prove at least one ground and the, the standard of proof is pretty high it's clear and convincing evidence just right. a little less than beyond a reasonable doubt which is what the standard is for a criminal trial mm-hmm. this is not criminal it's civil but that standard of proof is very high and it's unusual for civil proceedings to have that standard of proof and The reason for that is that a termination of parental rights is a very big deal. Serious. It is one of the most serious things that can happen in Mm -hmm. in the civil courts. And in fact, our Supreme Court at one point had termed it um, essentially the death penalty equivalent of a civil case because you're separating, permanently separating this child and these parents, at least until the child's 18. And you're severing those ties, not just with the parent. But with
0: all of those biological relatives, is that
1: correct? That's Mm -hmm. correct. The grandmothers, the aunts, the uncles, Mm -hmm. their relationship to that child legally flows through Mm -hmm. either the mother or the father that they're related to. Mm -hmm. So when that parent's parental rights are terminated, that aunt is no longer legally an aunt to that child. That Mm -hmm. grandmother is no longer legally a grandmother to that child. And then you also talked about
0: incarceration of a parent. And I know that That's another um, situation that tends to cause some confusion, whereas, let's say, uh, a mother was incarcerated prior to the child coming into custody, Um, and then she's not able to visit, although we know case managers can um, can make provisions for parents to visit while they are incarcerated. However, sometimes I think people feel like um, because his parents incarcerated that, and they're not going to be getting out for a certain period of time that we should be able to terminate rights but right. that's not the case that's
1: it? not the case no and in fact the law is very careful to not just protect the safety of the children and mm-hmm. not just try to find a permanent home for the children but to be mindful of the parents rights mm-hmm. uh, they are still the parents unless and until a judge terminates those rights, they're still the parents. So the, the, the abandonment grounds, the failure to visit, the failure to support, the failure to provide the suitable home, mm-hmm. going to jail, one of the things the department has to prove in those cases, mm-hmm. for those grounds, is that the parent's actions were willful. Okay. So if mom has a four month period of time and she only visits two time and she's incarcerated, that's not willful if she's right. in jail she can't come to a visitation mm-hmm. most jails won't allow an infant to be in a jail to visit no, they won't. now if mom is not incarcerated mm-hmm. and she has nothing else where she has to be she's not mm-hmm. hospitalized or or ill or anything like that and she just doesn't show up for those visits that is willful so that is potentially a ground that the court would find in our favor mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's a that's a good point uh, that's the same thing for the failure to support the suitable home mm-hmm. and the incarcerated parent
0: Great. Okay, so you talked about a few more grounds. Um, Do you want to go through some of those for us? Sure,
1: sure. There are some other grounds. Um, There's the permanency plan ground Mm -hmm. and uh, anybody who's been involved with the department as a foster parent or even a relative a parent, knows that when children come into foster care one of the things the department is required by law to do is develop what's called a permanency plan Mm -hmm. and that plan is what identifies what the risks were to the children what the Mm -hmm. dangers were and why the children had to be removed and it identifies a plan for um, remedying those circumstances so For example, if we got children in because mother and the father were engaged in alcohol and drug abuse, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that would be on that plan is that they submit to an alcohol and drug assessment and that any recommendations from that, that they comply with that. Um, And there's a number of things on the permanency plan that address those. Mm -hmm. This is one of those grounds where the department has an obligation to work with the parents and provide what's called reasonable efforts. Um, you can have a situation where mom does nothing on a plan, if the department hasn't made reasonable efforts and tried to assist her appropriately, then we're not gonna get that ground anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's a give and take. The department has to work and the parent has to work. As and long hopefully
0: as, they're working together. Hopefully
1: they're working together. And that's that's the goal, that's what mm-hmm. these plans are for, is right. to reunify this family. Right. And if a parent can work those goals, um, that's what happens, is mm-hmm. these families will be reunified but there are cases where the parents don't Right. right. They, they don't or they won't and those are circumstances that's one of the grounds we take to the court and show the court this is what the court ordered this is what the plan required this is what was necessary for the kids to be home safe mm-hmm. the parents haven't done that and if we can prove that then we've proven that ground assuming we can also prove that we did our part mm-hmm. that we made the efforts we were supposed to make right. to help that parent
0: And the judge has to make the determination that we may feel like we've made all of the efforts, the judge has to make that determination to say that the department has made all reasonable efforts um, in order to help the parent assist the parent to work their perm plan
1: exactly and that that's that's the that's really the key um, the department can only do what the department is allowed to do under the law mm-hmm. and the law does require that a court make a finding uh, find at least one of the potential grounds that mm-hmm. we've pled in our petition uh, by clearing convincing evidence that the department made reasonable efforts if that's what that ground requires right. and also that it's in the child's best interest right That's a big part of it, too, because ultimately it always circles back around to what's best for this child. How do we keep this child safe and how do we make this child happy and have a permanent home?
0: Right. And so that could be maybe frustrating to some of the parties involved at times is if we've met the ground, we've made reasonable efforts. However, the judge determines that the termination is not in the child's best interest. Then that CPR will not be
1: granted. Right, right, and that can be frustrating for folks, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, sometimes it's frustrating for us. Oh yeah, um, it really can be. We've had mm-hmm. cases like that, but it can happen, uh, and you know, it can be, it can be an example as, as the child is just so very, very bonded mm-hmm. to one or both of the parents right. that terminating that relationship is going to be more damaging in the court's eyes to that child than allowing the child to remain in foster care for a period of time longer. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think if a child's of a certain age, right, they have input into whether the um, parental rights are terminated, is that, do I have that right?
1: You do. In fact, uh-huh. the law requires the court to consider the child's wishes, um, and, it, and it's, you know, obviously of a certain age, 13 and above, uh-huh. um, is what the court's looking for. and. The older the child is within that age range, the more weight the court is is expected to give to that child's preference. Mm-hmm. And that can often be a circumstance where we have many grounds that we can prove against a parent. Right. We can prove a um, substantial amount of reasonable efforts, and we get to the best interest part and that child absolutely does not want those parents' rights terminated. Mm-hmm. And if it's a 17-year-old child uh, who's going to be 18 and an adult in, in a year or less anyway, that's going to carry a lot of weight with the court. Right. But to be honest, it carries a lot of weight with us, too. We, we go through those analyses um, we when we're even deciding whether to pursue a TPR.
0: definitely do. And, and then also looking at, do we have a permanency option for that youth?
1: Right right and that's really what this the 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 sole real true goal of the termination of parental rights is to get a permanent home for the child and 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 that's just in these particular cases these narrow circumstances that's just through an adoption that's not going to be all of the cases by any means but it is Mm -hmm. some of the cases and you know there there's several other grounds that, that go along with that one of them is is severe abuse uh-huh. Um, and that's a legal term, and that's defined in the statutes as well. A parent who severely abuses their child, and that can be um, sexual abuse. That's the more serious physical abuse where you're mm-hmm. causing actual damage to the child, mm-hmm. broken bones, severely bruised, burned. Um, some, some acts against a child the legislature has determined to be so bad mm-hmm. that it, it's classified as severe abuse, and that in and itself is a ground to terminate parental rights. Right. so we can get cases where we we go out and investigate and find this child has been severely abused and pretty much from the beginning of the case we know that we're already looking at potentially terminating those parental rights right right
0: right from the beginning right from the beginning because of the severity of the situation right.
1: because of the severity of the abuse that was inflicted upon the child by that parent
0: are there any other grounds that
1: there are a number of that? other grounds mm-hmm. um, we can just kind of run through those real quickly Uh, a parent who's been sentenced for child abuse that can be a ground Um, a parent who has a 10-year sentence of incarceration whether they serve the full 10 years or not if they're sentenced to 10 years and the child is a certain age um, then this legislature has determined that's a ground for terminating parental rights because by the time that parent can get out of jail that right. child's going to be virtually spent their entire childhood
0: and, um, and almost the grown. Child. it's not no. the
1: child needs a parent right. um, there's mental incompetence mm-hmm. where if there's an expert that says that one or both of the parents is so mentally incompetent they're not going to ever be able to care for a child mm-hmm. that's you know and all of these grounds are sad some are more sad than others Definitely. Um, mm-hmm. that's one uh, there's a failure to exercise paternity that mm-hmm. falls on the men out there you know if there's a, mm-hmm. a dad who hasn't legitimated the child, but has been given notice by mom or some other circumstance, this is your kid, and he knows that this child is in foster care and does nothing to attempt to get custody or prove that he's dad. That's a a ground. There's a newer one that we've gotten recently, which is essentially a failure to manifest an ability and willingness to take custody of the child that's the, it's the legal terminology basically it's when a parent has a child that's in foster care they know the child's in foster care and they just really don't seem to care right. and there are a few parents out there like that they just don't do anything they don't try to do anything right. um, to to even be involved let alone to try to actually get custody they
0: probably weren't very involved prior to the child coming into custody and yes. then remain uninvolved um and you know, fortunate to have that ground now because, again, we don't want children to linger in foster care. We want to find them permanency.
1: That, and that's really what this is all about. Um, and I'll just kind of go back to, from a layperson's perspective that's not on the inside, it's really, it's important to remember, especially for foster parents, they don't always get to have all of this information. Right. Um, to know that the department's hands are are tied in a sense when it comes to terminations of parental rights we don't get to have just complete latitude to decide Mm -hmm. when we want to do it Uh, there are those specific grounds and unless the circumstances of a particular case meet at least one of those grounds we can't file a petition to terminate parental rights that's it it's it's either one of the grounds or it's not there Mm -hmm. Um, and then within the context of that once we pick a ground or two or three or four we have to meet the elements of those grounds we have to prove those by clear and convincing evidence and at times that can be difficult um, okay. sometimes it's difficult to convince a judge sometimes it's a difficult to uh, to get the proof that's needed in the first place right. but it really it is it is all for the benefit of children who at that point really have no other option for a permanent home and mm-hmm. you know one of the most grossly unfair things that could happen to a child is to just leave a child in foster care right
0: we all know the the damage and the effects of um, just allowing a child to stay in foster care without that permanency for them. It's trauma. The system, in and of itself, induces trauma, not because we're doing any harm to the child, but because it's an unnatural situation for the state right. to be in the position of a parent or a guardian. Um, and so we want to make life and their environment as normal as possible for our kids in care. And we know we have a lot of committed foster parents out there who do that, who provide their homes for these kids. Um, but we want the state to be out of their lives when, whenever possible. And so I know sometimes we have foster parents who become frustrated with the system um, because they don't understand why we're not moving towards permanency or towards a termination. I'm sorry, more quickly. So any advice that you would give to a foster parent who's feeling that way?
1: Uh, we have, first of all, I'll say we have wonderful foster parents out there and Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's, it's worth repeating what you said. The, the trauma to children in foster care isn't because the foster parents aren't the best people in the world because I mean, who else would do something like this? take on children, bring them into their homes, give them love, give them you know, security. But the foster parents' hands are tied. Right. As long as they're foster parents, their hands are tied. They can only give so much security and those mm-hmm. children know that. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as they get a little bit older and they can ascertain what their circumstances are and know these are my foster mom and dad versus mm-hmm. these are my adoptive mom and dad. Right. It's that sense of, of security mm-hmm. that's missing for these foster kids. They need a family. They don't need a foster home. They need a foster home temporarily, but what they need is a family. They need a mom right. and dad. And if that's the foster parents, that's great. But they need to know, mm-hmm. this is now my mom and dad, They're not just my foster parents. This is right. my home, right. And, and that's the big part. So for foster parents, I think um, it's important to remember that you know the department really does have restrictions and requirements that we're required to follow. Um, give you one more real quick example. there's mm-hmm. a lot of times some frustration and, and misunderstanding about say a parent who continues to test positive for drugs right but they continue to be allowed to have visitation. Mm-hmm. and the reason for that is as although it may may not seem like those two ideas flow well together is that the department's not here to punish parents. as long as the parent isn't under the influence right. at the time of that visit, that visit needs to happen because it's as much for the child as it is is. for that foster parent uh, or if i'm sorry for that parent and we don't stop the visits as a way of punishing the parent for having a dirty drug screen right
0: as long as they're not impaired as long
1: as they're not impaired at the time Mm -hmm. of that actual hearing that they're not under the influence and we're not going to punish the child for the parent still continuing to struggle Mm because it can take a while to resolve those issues Uh, another part of that is too if we were to stop those types of visits then we would have a hard time establishing a ground of failure to visit down the road mm-hmm. to terminate parental rights if that's what it comes to right. because we have to have made those available. We have to
0: make those reasonable
1: efforts. Right. right? And we yeah. have to make reasonable efforts. And as we talked about, the parent's failure to visit has to be willful. Right. And if they're not given the opportunity to visit, it's not willful exactly. if they don't visit. Mm-hmm. But there's always a case manager that's involved mm-hmm. with DCS and that's the first point of contact. That's who they yeah. should talk to. Right. And if you know, as a foster parent, you feel like you maybe don't get the information that you need mm-hmm. or that there's more that you want to know, and the, and the the case manager can't seem to help you with that. They have a team leader. You right. know, there's a chain of, of workers, a uh, chain mm-hmm. of leadership. Feel free to go up that chain of leadership. That's why it's there
0: team leader, team coordinator, regional administrator, yes. all the way up to the
1: commissioner. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody should. We, the department doesn't hide the ball. We're not in business right. to confuse people, to hide things, hide the ball. We we are transparent. We want to be right. as transparent as possible, provide as much information as we can. But even within that context, there are statutes that require us to keep certain things by law right. confidential. So there may be a bit of information here and there that we can't share with a foster right. parent. But that's something that the the case manager should be be able to identify to them. This is one of those things that I can't really share with you. We
0: can share information about the child. We cannot necessarily share information about the parent because that's their confidential information. And and then also we have the child and family team meeting process, which foster parents can call for a meeting at any time. And we're focused on foster parents, but really this applies to parents as well, parents who may be... Um, biological parents who may be frustrated with the system. They have a chain of command. They, you know, you always want to start with your case manager and try to work things out there. Um, And they have the CFTM process as well. And, you know, it really is a heartbreaking situation and nobody enters TPRs lately, as Mm -hmm. we mentioned before, because, um, you know, it's devastating. It's devastating to see parents who are unable to care or provide for their children um, regardless of how much they may love them or want to be able to support them. Then you have situations, as you mentioned, where children are severely abused and injured, um, and we want to protect that child as quickly as possible and find a placement for them. Mm -hmm. And then we have foster parents who um, open their homes and their hearts to these children who are sometimes reunified to their families or sometimes, um, like you said, the, the ability to call them their own is delayed by this process, but we do it we we all do it with the best intention and we're all dedicated and committed to this process and both our attorneys and our case managers are out there working as diligently as possible to in, to ensure this process is done correctly and timely.
1: I agree so, completely. And it's also good to point out and note that you know just as is appropriate with anything to do with the government, there are checks and balances built right. into this process as well. Mm-hmm. There is a judge that oversees everything the department does on every one of its cases. Mm-hmm. There is uh, a parent who's entitled to have their own counsel, mm-hmm. and that that attorney can reach out to the department's attorney if they have questions, so that's another avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much every single one of these cases the child will also have what's called a guardian ad litem which is an attorney that's appointed by the court to represent the best interests of that child and the guardian's job and responsibility is to tell the court what issues they think that the child might have that need to be addressed whether everybody's doing that appropriately or Mm -hmm. not uh, and what they feel is in the child's best interest Mm
0: -hmm. well Sean, I really appreciate you taking your time out today to help us understand this process more clearly And thanks and have a great day. Thank you, Julie. Bye.
1: Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this April 18th, 2019 edition of ECS Talks. Please look for more podcasts in the upcoming months where we will dive into other topics and issues around child welfare.